2: No postmodern work can slake. I refuse to read a book unless it's thicker than a steak. Now, Gordon Lish and Barianna have their partisans and shills, but I prefer Victoriana for my literary thrills. And of all the British authors who were writing at that time, there's one special British author I find especially sublime. Now, Austin is awesome. And Dickens is a kick, but no one packs a wallow. quite like Trollope. Yes, Trollope is the one I most adore, but my days of reading Trollope are no more. I was sitting in a quaint cafe with a favorite tome and some cafe au lait by my. Luck ran out when you came my way. Now I'll never read trouble again. You spied the governor as you slithered near and said, The 1800s, that's my favorite year. And then you sat right
3: down. All right, so everybody has some kind of book that they're never going to read again, or maybe more pertinently for today, a book they never got through. We're talking today about unreadable books, and I think. We ultimately need to make a distinction between books that we stop reading because we don't think that they're very good and books that are canonical or are shortlisted for the Booker Prize or books that we know are by common consensus really good books that we, for some reason or another, are having trouble reading and maybe are not going to get through. In fact, we're not going to get through them. Um, And... Before I sort of give you a whole list of what those books are, I'll just confess the two that I feel really bad about are Wolf Hall uh, by Hilary Mantel and One Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Because I know that those are both really good books. And with Wolf Hall, it just should work for me. It's something about the way she moves the literary version of a camera around the, the, the narration style is a problem for me. I, I know I should like that book, and I know I should like Garcia Marquez, but somehow or other, I don't get through them, and I, I've made multiple sorties. So we asked people on social media, which may, by the way, be a contributing factor to people not finishing books, social media. Uh, we asked them what they hadn't been able to read. Uh, here's the inimitable, inimitable cat pastor reading uh, 46 seconds of unreadable books.
4: Infinite
5: Jest. Gravity's Rainbow. The Dubliners. Ulysses. 100 Years of Solitude. Les Miserables. A Prayer for Owen Meany. S. Wicked. How to Write. Cold Mountain. Collapse. The Bible. A Tale of Two Cities. Great Expectations. Fifty Shades of Grey, A Brief History of Time, The Name of the Rose, Moby Dick, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, The Woman in White, Faithful, Grapes of Wrath, Rim, Mansfield Park, Catch-22, Godel, Escher, Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid, A Confederacy of Dunces,
3: all right, so that's the list. I'm sorry, I didn't know where it ended. I should have been paying more attention. Uh, so here to talk about all this are uh, two people who have been on the show before. Uh, we enjoy them very much. Uh, Rand Richards Cooper uh, is a fiction writer. He is a contributing editor at Commonweal. He is a book critic. Uh, he's also the restaurant critic for The Hartford Current uh, Dennis Duncan uh, has been with us before, uh, a lecturer uh, in English at University College London, and author of Index, A History of the... I should do that differently. Index, comma, a history of the, a bookish adventure from medieval manuscripts to the digital age. He was on our show. That was occasioned by his book. We did a whole show about it. indexes or indices. I think we decided indexes. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about here today. So, Rand, maybe let, let's sort of indeed run our thumb down the knife's edge of unreadable books. There are some books that we stop reading because we don't think they're good. Or they're just not entertaining us or whatever. And then there are books that we know we should be reading. They are part uh, of the whole idea of being a well-read person. Um, But somehow or other, they're not going to be our part of being a well-read person. Maybe I'll just begin by asking you. I mean, you're such a voracious reader. uh, Are there notable failures that you feel bad about? Yeah, and um – I think that
6: distinction
5: you made between the two kinds of unreadable is is a good one. Books that we consider so ill-conceived or clumsily executed, that's sort of a simple a simple thing. Um, it, it's less simple when someone considers a book that you like to be one of those really, really bad books. But we all think, oh, this is a really, really bad book, and that's the sort of simple things. I, every time I've tried to look at Ayn Rand, you know, I'm just going nowhere with that. And I'm comfortable with the idea that I I think of those as sort of clumsy, cold, bad novels. But the, this other category, the category we're dealing with today, it's that canonical nature—the fact that these books are considered great. Um, they're they're sort of canonically approved. And then when you try, you feel you feel thwarted. And I spend some time thinking about the kinds of books that thwart me. Like you, I have my list. That's sort of the. The money shot of this of this show, we'll get to that. But I try to think about specifically what the experience of feeling thwarted, stuck, and stopped is, and what kinds of writing tend to do it. um the, the and when Julia comes on, uh, you know, I, I feel so indicted by 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 her essay about how you should <laughs> stick to books because I'm I'm a guy who it's a little bit like food. I I tend to treat literature too much like food. Oh, I don't like to taste it. I taste it once. Ooh, taste it twice. Ooh. Um, And then I say, ah, you know, not for me. And I move on to something whose taste I like. But Colin, I I thought one thing that I could talk very briefly about as sort of background for this is the idea of the obverse. That is the very readable book uh, that seems to be the specialty of really popular books. Now, a few years ago was the summer when all these girl books were out, the girl on the train, the girl in the window, gone, gone girl. And I I considered, I read all these books and I considered them to be guilty pleasures. And I had this ongoing art, uh, argument with a friend of mine, Michael Robinson, about what constitutes a guilty pleasure culturally. He has no use for the concept. But for me, sort of the guilty pleasure novel, it's its hallmark is speed. You could you dive into that kind of novel for an hour, you've read 150 pages, you can just cruise and skim. You You actually have a sort of guilty pleasure of semi-consciously separating out the narrative elements to figure out what you can effectively skip and still keep track of what's going on. The guilty read pleasure is about about ease and speed. There are no impediments. Everything's designed to keep you cruising. Novels that, that we prize more, including, I'm sure, the novels that you love and the novels that I cherish over the years, are sort of made in ways to do the opposite, to slow you down. Language is used in unexpected ways and temporal structures and points of view shift. There are multiple ironies, uh, chapters don't follow pre-cut sizes or, or designs, um, and I and all of all of the books that I was trained as a reader by really astute teachers in high school and college to read the first difficult writers Faulkner Joyce Nabokov even in his weird way Hemingway simplicity difficulty and simplicity um, these were not massively difficult writers but they do une- unexpected things with narrative and language they make you be alert and they make you work my sense of the for me the uh, unreadable novel is it's like the challenging novel on steroids. I'm I'm required to do more work than I'm lazily willing to do. And in the absence of my willingness to do that work, I tend to feel lost and disoriented. And that's sort of the hallmark. And then I put it down because guess what? I don't wanna feel stupid. The unreadable book makes me feel stupid. I hate feeling stupid. The fact that I often am stupid doesn't help. and, uh, and and so that's you know that that's what happens with the with the unreadable book.
3: All right, so I want to um, swing th- I, th- I, I mean, want to, to Rand, I want to swing things yeah. over to Dennis here. Um, so Dennis, building a little bit on what Rand just said. Um, You know, it's surprising even to hear the list that that Kat read. I mean, Great Expectations, for example, would seem to me to be in the category of a book written—I mean, Dickens, because of the manner in which he wrote, because of the the nature of his employment— he wrote to keep to keep people reading right he wasn't really interested in throwing in some stylistic challenge that might stop you in your tracks his whole employment was pretty much built around the idea of keeping people reading
7: yeah i i really enjoyed listening to that list actually because what it, what struck me about it is that you could do a kind of typology of of difficulty. All the different books on this are not difficult in the same way. We've got one category which is Infinite jest and Pynchon and joyce, which I think Rand touched on, which we, we, we can come to a little bit more. But then the Bible. Now, the Bible's a difficult book to read, but you're not supposed to read it like that. that if, you're, if you're you know starting at Genesis and expecting to finish a couple of months later at Revelation, you're reading it the wrong way. And so that's <laughs> sort of category error about difficulty. Um, 50 Shades slipped into the list. And I think that's the uh, uh the type that you were talking about at the start, the, the, the book that's that's difficult because as Rand says, it's it's clumsily executed or ill-conceived. Um, Goedelesch of Bach or, or, or um, Brief History of Time, they're difficult because, conceptually, they're difficult. And if you come to them as a, as a sort of humanities reader, you quickly come up against... Um, needing to have a background in in philosophy or mathematics um, that might not have been made clear to you on the cover. So that, that's a different kind of, uh, you know, subject difficulty there. But I was really interested, like you, about Great Expectations, Woman in White. I was expecting to hear War and Peace on the list. I thought I was going to say something about this, that some books appear difficult because they're big, just because they're thick. The Woman in White is, is, is a big 800-page novel. War and Peace is 1,200 pages. But they're both classic Victorian realist Fiction. They're just on or, or, you know painted on large canvas. So there's something about the, the unreadable list that's to do with the, the the approach, to do with the commitment, to do with not being able to tick another book off your list at the end of a week. This is going to take you a month. This is daunting. And difficulty sometimes might be physical when, when you have a, a big book, sometimes they make it. To, to save money on paper, they produce it in a small typeface. And I find that very rebarbative. <laughs> I find myself really struggling. But actually, unlike climbing a mountain with these books, it's just like going on a very long walk. They're not uh, um, sort of difficult in, in the way that uh, Ulysses, which, which, which has sort of difficulties at the sentence level,
3: Right. So another lesson I think that we're going to learn here today is that one person's incredibly easy and accessible book is another person's difficult and unreadable book. We're going to hear this right now, I think, in Kate from West Hartford. This is A2, cat.
1: So despite being assigned it twice, I've never made it through The Great Gatsby, or if I did, I don't remember it beyond the East Egg and West Egg at the beginning. I made it through so many other books that were challenging to read or simply just not my cup of tea. For example, Moby Dick. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser and The Da Vinci Code, which I think is the world's most boring thriller. But it seems odd that Gatsby would be the one I just can't finish. I even bought a copy a few years ago and gave it another try, and still, no, it's just never engaged me. I've read lots of Fitzgerald's short stories and loved them, but Gatsby, ugh, I can't do it. I'd just like to say, as a librarian, I want people to know that outside of class assignments, they are under no obligation to struggle through books that they find unreadable. Life is too short.
3: All right. So a lot there. So, Rand, I'm guessing Great Gatsby is not a book that you find unreadable. So
5: one of the amusing parts of this, of course, and, and like Dennis, I listened with great uh, interest to that first list and wondered how, could, how can great expectations be on it? Um, and certainly I wonder, I wonder how can Great Gatsby be on it? the 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 woman who couldn't read Gatsby did note that she liked Fitzgerald's short stories. For me, actually, Fitzgerald, when I look back at my own reading um, autobiography, was a real perfect was a perfect bridge between the kind of boys' books I read when I was a boy. You know, the Hardy Boys, the Chip Hilton sports stories, through uh, through Fitzgerald's stories about young men, stories like Winter Dreams, um, sort of romances involving young men. This was this was an easy way to cross toward real adult literature. So I see Gatsby and Fitzgerald as providing that bridge. Gatsby is a short novel. It's also for me the kind of novel when I return to it, which I do every 10 years, I find something in it that I didn't find before. It's actually the the example, to use Dennis's idea of the uh, the topology of difficulty, I would not include that at all in the same category as, as, say, the book that everyone cites, Finnegan's Wake. If you just pick a passage at random from Finnegan's Wake, which we could we could read aloud, it is it is like reading a foreign language. The way that modernism dove into interiority and and privacy um, peaks in a way in Finnegan's Wake with with the use of a of a semi-private uh, language that the reader uh, encounters um, with a difficulty of that that amounts to translation that, that you know, that. I can't read Finnegan's Wake. I've tried. Ha- I haven't tried hard enough to satisfy Juliet. Um, absolutely not. But um, it puts up walls of linguistic uh, obstacles with not too many vines you know, to climb up.
3: So um, let's go over to you on this, Dennis. I mean, there are some books I think that are almost it's almost though as though they are written partly as that kind of challenge mm. another one that comes up dennis i, I think a lot uh, is infinite just by david foster wallace and it it a- almost seems as though he was almost perversely trying to write a book that you would find difficult to read
7: well i have to confess i have encountered <laughs> both in my social life and my academic life a certain type of reader who's who, who's attracted to these books, the way a mountain climb is attracted to a certain, you know, to climbing the north face <laughs> of the Eiger. And they like to tell you, oh, you know, the, the writers that I like, are pinch and uh, David Foster Wallace, Ulysses and stuff. There's a certain kind of alpha thing that attracts a certain type, of, if, if I might say, kind of theory boy. Um, there was a, a lovely interview with Lucy Ellman uh, in, in The Washington Post when, when ducks, uh, um, a new report came out, which is another one of these small category of novels that's one, one massive sentence. It's a thousand pages, but it's one sentence. And she said to the interview, she said um, there's something gendered about the way that people responded to it. Lots of reviewers complained. Lots of people said, not this kind of thing. And She says, well, can I say that I also suspect it wouldn't be such an issue if I were not female. Men can take liberties. A woman writing a long book is considered audacious, if not outrageous. Our novels, like us, are supposed to be petite, and that really struck a chord with me, because it d- did make me think, well, all of the people that I know who are always telling you how their favourite book is Gravity's Rainbow or something, they're all boys. It just, uh, um, when Rand said, you know, moving from sort of boys' fiction to, to, uh, to The Great Gatsby, I thought, well, actually, there's another type of boys' fiction, which is the, let me tell you about that really long, novel that I read, that really tough novel, that mountain that I climbed. Um, I did want to jump in about Finnegan's Wake though, um, which is that uh, to say that sometimes with very good, difficult or famously difficult rebarbative uh, fiction, the way to read it is, is communally. There's a very long-running Finnegan's Wake reading group in London that runs every other Friday, and has uh, it's been going for a couple of decades and has a cast of you know the same dozen or so people who tell it's open to the public but you come and you read about six lines all together and then you go off and next week you can come back and do another six lines and i did the same thing this lockdown first lockdown uh, early 2020 with Boccaccio's decameron which is a, a long portmanteau um novel if you like from from the, the 1340s italian novel And the way that we read it was we set up a Zoom group and we would meet once a week and we would have read three chapters and there were 10 of us to start with. And it was going to take pretty much all year. And I admit by the end of the year, there was only four of us left, but it was that (laughs) that pulled me through. I guess to use the mountaineering thing, it's like other people (laughs) had my rope and were dragging me up the mountain. And I think if there's something you really want to read, find somebody else to read it with you. That's a, a good way of making sure peer pressure gets you to the top.
3: Let's say one more thing about Finnegan's Wake, and that's going to come from uh, Alex Dubin, who's often appeared with Rand uh, on our show, uh, talking about his unreadable book,
6: Guess What? A4Cat. When people list unreadable books, I find that I've actually read a lot of them. Ulysses, Infinite Jest, The Silmarillion. But one book I have never been able to read is Finnegan's Wake, and I like James Joyce. I truly, honestly do, but I cannot. I just cannot.
3: And, you know, Rand, that kind of almost, it echoes a little bit what you said. There are certain books where, it, you know, and, and maybe we can get to this uh, in the next segment uh, with our, our next guest. I do want to say, by the way, because I forgot to say this at the beginning, um, in the final segment uh, of our show, apropos of the uh, of the thing we, we just played, which mentioned Dan Brown, we're going to talk about the actual unreadable book. There actually is a book that's unreadable. Uh, it's existed for 600 years, and nobody has ever been able to read it. It's called the Voynich Manuscript. It currently resides, uh, actually, at the Beinecke a Rare Book Library a- at Yale. But it is literally an unreadable book. <laughs> um, we'll talk about that then, though. Um, so, so now I've forgotten what I was going to bring up. Uh, but, but, oh, I know what it was. Rand, there is a feeling that you, I think we sometimes get that it feels less volitional and more like, I can't do this. Like, I really can't do it. And it could be for all of the very pointed reasons that you brought up about Finnegan's Wake because the book is is you know almost perversely structured to make it difficult to read. But sometimes it's just – I mean, I really have had this problem with Wolf Hall, which I, I think should be a – very readable book for me and I, I hit a point where i think there's something about my brain that won't do this i don't know. react to that idea well
5: uh, i i got i i rarely get three quarters of the way through a novel and then and then stop usually i stop pretty pretty quickly um but i did stop with jonathan franzen's book crossroads uh and sort of for the opposite reasons that the unreadable book, book poses, um, friends, and I, found, I find maybe even excessively readable. Three quarters of the way through, I felt like there's nothing left. I, I pretty much have, have got this novel. So for me to jump ship and abandon, it doesn't feel like the same kind of defeat um, that being lost at sea in a novel whose narrative mind you don't really understand. It's a very special feeling. I I, I think that's what you're getting at a little bit. I tend to decide that a certain writer is not going to be my kind of writer, and I do that by Juliet standards far too easily. I'll read one thing, then I'll read a bunch of reviews. I'm capable of deciding from reviews that, you know, ah, that writer's not going to be a writer for me. That's, that's terrible. Maybe in my retirement I will change that and I will finally read William Gaddis. But when, you know, one writer that I sort of stayed away from is William S. Gass because he's the kind of Wittgensteinian, language-oriented, philosophically-minded novelist that I I tend to have a big problem with. So for this show, I went and read his celebrated story in the heart of the heart of the country. It's 30 pages, um, and it took me almost an hour and a half, which for me is very, very slow reading. And I found it; um, uh, its prose was lavishly rewarding. There were there were bits of, of of great beauty, but there were there were many many bafflements. By page four, I was writing in the margin, you know, where where am I? I I I I feel lost here. Um, and uh, despite the bits of stricken beauty that are strewn around it, what you had to do to figure out sort of the basic reality parameters of the narrative was an enormous amount of work. That's not necessarily bad. You are forced, in the framework I chose before about being able to speed through or having to stop, that gas makes you stop all the time. And you have to be a super active reader because you're ha- you have all these bits of things that are strewn around you. You actually have to piece them together in an active act of, of meaning, meaning making. That's sort of the opposite of, you know, girl, girl on a train. And so the question is, you know, are 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 you willing to do that? Nabokov said all rereading is rereading. All reading is rereading. The the gas story, I probably would have to read it three times. And I'm I I'm, I'm I'm not sure I'm I'm up for that. So I I do feel like as you said at the beginning of that call, it's like
3: it's beyond volitional. It's like I, I I'm 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 lost here, and I don't I don't want to be. All right, so Dennis, you know another part of your life is being an educator, uh, and in that capacity, you sometimes have the job either of requiring some people to read a book they don't want to read, or lead, leading them through a book that they don't. Want to read, or they don't think they want to read. Can you talk a little bit about this, and maybe as each generational cohort kind of comes online, uh, they may have a whole different set of sensibilities that don't line up all that well with, you know, Lawrence Stern or whoever.
7: Well, I think that's a really good point. I think in order to approach certain books that that are uh, superficially difficult, um, it helps to know the context. It helps to understand what is it they're trying to do, and then they become. Um, far less difficult. We have one on, on the English degree where I teach, where a couple of years ago students would arrive at the beginning of their undergraduate degree, 18-year-olds, and one of the first novels that we asked them to read in their first term was Tristram Shandy, uh, one of my favourite novels, and, and, and many of my colleagues' uh, uh, favourite novels, a novel that, that English teachers tend to like enough, a lot from the late 18th century, and it's very funny and it's very playful and it feels modernist or post-modernist avant la lettre, but if you give it to an 18-year-old who's read a bit of Dickens and, and not much else, um, they really struggle with it. And it's then, then it's horrible to teach. You've got uh, somebody sitting in front of you who hasn't read the book and you're trying to have a discussion with them and they haven't done their homework. And so eventually we decided that we would have to drop it, either drop it completely or move it to the third year. And hopefully by the third year, they have a, a, more of a contextual sense of of why it's so funny, why we love it so much. And I think that's worked out pretty well that students at the end of their third year go, I love Tristan Shandy, but they never said that at the beginning of their first. Similarly with Ulysses, that Ulysses, I mean, if you do my English degree, you have to do pretty much a novel a week if that's The Mill on the Floss or uh, uh, um, Jane Austen. But Ulysses we give over several weeks to um, simply because we know that otherwise people won't get it. People will uh, uh, reject it. People, again, you'll have that thing of teaching a class where nobody's done the homework, you're talking to yourself um so we break it down into you know four episodes in the first week four episodes in the second week and so on by the time you get to the end by the time you get to the, the sort of uh, uh, the great uh, molly bloom soliloquy you have the context to understand what's so, so good about it so unreadable books um you can do a lot of groundwork that makes them readable or you come into a, a, a i think this is possibly something that rand was saying earlier you come into a phase of your life um when the thing does start to make sense
3: all right. We're going to have to pause for a second. We're so great, to, so happy to have Dennis Duncan, lecturer in English at University College London and author of Index Comma, A History of The, A Bookish Adventure from Medieval Manuscripts to the Digital Age. Great to have him back on our show. Uh, Rand is going to stay with us. We're going to go into another segment in which we talk about whether you're allowed to stop reading a book or whether you are morally required to finish it. Um, let's, we're going to end this segment, though, with our old friend David Edelstein talking about this topic.
1: The weirdest experience I had with the book was with this thousand page novel called City of Fire by Garth Helberg from 2015. It had incredible reviews from real heavyweights like A.O. Scott and Maureen Corrigan. She said it was poetic, expansive, ingeniously plotted. That was Maureen, good old Maureen. So the beginning was really cool because it built to this young woman being put into a coma. And you don't know who did it, and you don't know why. And I was totally hooked for about 300 pages. And then it just kind of slowed down plot-wise. And I thought, fair enough, because the author wants to explore the 1970s New York City milieu more fully. But then, I don't know, then I kind of went into a coma. I was reading on my Kindle, which told me I was 56% through, which is more than 500 pages. But hours went by. And it just would not go to 57%. And two days later, it finally did. And I thought, okay, I've broken the logjam. But then it was another week. And I was still reading. And it was still 57%. And then one day, I opened the Kindle, and it said 56%. I thought, what the hell? It's like the guys continuing to write and continuing to feed pages into my Kindle. I I just realized I I would never catch up. I'd never get to the end of it. So I said, enough. So anyway, City on Fire, it's my coma book. Thank you for listening. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare.
5: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person
3: We are back. Uh, joining us uh, is Rand Richards Cooper, a fiction writer, contributing editor at Commonweal, and the restaurant critic for The Hartford Courant. Uh, he writes book reviews for The New York Times and lots of other places. Uh, Juliet Lapidos is ideas editor for The Atlantic and author of the novel Talent. Um, so Juliet, uh, you famously uh, wrote a piece for The Atlantic called "Finish That Book!" Exclamation um, point. You might have—I don't know if you were listening before—but Rand confessed to not finishing Crossroads, even though he thought it was a pretty good book. But three quarters of the way through, he sort of knew it had what it had to disgorge. I would, by the way differ with that I think actually that's a book worth finishing. Uh, I actually read a Neil Gaiman novel American Gods all the way th- through and then stopped five pages before the end but exactly for the same reason because I thought oh <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm okay I'm good I know I know what's I know I, it's not imp- not important to me how this ends but you you have a real kind of almost ethical problem with that. Talk a little bit about that ethical problem. Uh,
0: thanks for having me. Yeah yeah i know this kind of cultural judgment is really out of vogue to tell people (laughs) what they should or shouldn't do with their leisure time and how they should approach reading um but i um yeah i wrote a piece about finishing every book i read or every book that i pick up and that continues to be the case and um you know my my argument is threefold and the, the first one the first part of the argument is that there are a lot of books that I've picked up and then I hit a rough patch and I think about putting it down, but I persist. And then I, um, I end up being very happy that I did because it has a great ending or it has a really wonderful chapter toward the end there and it picks up again. And if I had abandoned the project, then I would have missed out on um, something really good. So, so uh, in that piece um, I use the example of um. Henry James that most of his books I have struggled with at one point or another but every one of his books I have found to have just something transcendentally good in it that um, inspired me and that I kept thinking about years later and I'm so glad that I finished those books um so that's that's one part of the argument just that um it, it's worth persisting to to see what happens because sometimes something really good happens um and uh, you know, another part of the argument is just the value of um, persistence. That um, the discipline of of keeping going, I think, is valuable um, and can be transferable to to other parts of your life. So there are lots of things that I have to do in my job or as a parent that I don't really want to do, and just the the um, the discipline, the habit of finishing things one starts, I think, is um, is worthwhile.
3: All right, so um, so I, I'm especially intrigued by the idea that because I think it's basically true that if you hang in there long enough, there's there are going to be pearls. Even though you feel like you're swimming through soup, uh, you'll get to <laughs> pearls. You'll get to rays of light, and they're worth it. Although. I feel like there's a cost-benefit analysis that, you know, you almost have to do kind of mentally. It's like, all right, I'm not enjoying this Tom Hard- Thomas Hardy novel. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just going to keep doing that until I get to this little ray of sun- sunlight. Uh, you know, is, is it really the case that it's always going to be worth it for me to do that?
0: Well, you know, I can't. I can't speak for other people. It has been worth it for me. And for me, it's also a way of respecting the author. So, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned in this piece, there's a big difference between as a writer starting a book and finishing a book. Um, and editors at publishing houses, you know, they want to see an ending because that's the difference between someone who's um, who's trying and someone who's succeeding to write a book. Um, and so I think as a writer, I also just want to respect what's happened. I want to respect the complete work of art. So that's part of what I'm doing. And I acknowledge that this is a little bit quirky and has to do with my own profession, as opposed to what just, um, you know, other people who enjoy reading books, um, don't have that kind of commitment. Uh, but it, but it's a way of respecting the art form for me. Right. I wouldn't say so all, all, three of us,
3: hard. all three of us in this conversation have written books, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I would warrant that all three of us have worked pretty hard on the endings too. But Rand, yeah. I want you to respond to all of this. I know you well enough to know that by and large, you, you are really in Juliet's camp most of the time. You're a very serious reader. You take the act of reading very seriously. It's not a casual relationship for you, except for with Gone Girl or whatever. But um, but, on the other hand, you've also confessed <laughs> publicly to not finishing certain books. so So, let's hear from you again well, i I do
5: feel lacerated and implicated uh, by Juliet's um strictures and uh, and they also prod me to 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 do better. Um, i do I think about when I think about you know, Juliet talks about read through the end to find out what happens. I think partly what she means by that is, you know, not just what happens with the plot, not just that something might happen that is a payoff and that is unexpected, but what happens in terms of what the writer is doing. And the, the, the reason I stopped with the Franzen novel without feeling any sort of angst about that at all is that I, I, I think I had figured out, um, uh, you know, what, what, he was, what he was doing. Uh, so i didn't put it down with a sense of defeat but just like okay i guys you said about about the book where you have to stopped with five pages to go it's like okay i got it i'm moving on life is short especially calling it you're in my age um and i have to parcel out the remaining moments accordingly. when you stop in the middle of a book that you're not getting that's unreadable there's an element of that that is that is the sort of confession of failure and feels like it um your failure as a reader and if you hang in there long enough um, you know, maybe you're going to understand the mind of the novel or the story, the mind of the narrative, the, the mind of the novelist. And if you go away too early, you're you're not going to. When I reread that William Gass story, I I can't say that I liked the the experience, um, but it was it was an interesting one. And and part of it was me trying to figure the story out, um, in in ways that uh, more narratively straightforward literature doesn't require me to do. Now, two things. To me, the greatest reader basically ever in the past hundred years was John Updike. Not the greatest writer. I happen to like his writing a lot, but many people didn't like it very much, and, and, and their dislike has been well articulated by many great critics. However, as a reader, he was never the kind of reader who was limited by his own preferred personal writing his kind of writing. He wandered intrepidly into the farthest fields of literature. There was no culture and no cultural narrative tradition too remote or too strange for him you know, to engage. Postmodernists, um, medievalists, it didn't matter. He always said it was a test of his Harvard education, and uh, and and Harvard fared pretty well. In fact, people who don't like Updike routinely say, except he was a great critic, and I consider him to be a great critic. By that standard, by Julia's standard, you know, I, I, I feel like a bit of a failure. <laughs> However, I am going away from Julia's article um, with new resolve to read um, uh, William Gaddis's The Recognitions and also Robert Musil's um, uh, novel Der Mann ohne Eigenschaften, the, the Man Without Qualities, uh, both, both of which have defeated me in the past, but I, but which I haven't, I haven't put up enough of the kind of fight that Julia is talking.
3: About. All right, maybe Julia can be like your AA sponsor. You can call her when you're. Yeah, when you're, yeah. Can so, I call you, Juliet, when but, I if I start to fail? <laughs> <laughs> but before we do that, since you brought up Updike, uh, Brian Slattery, one of our other regular contributors, knows panelists, etc., and a novelist in his own right, Cat, uh, get ready for A five. Uh, Brian Slattery has this to say.
4: At this point in my life, I find a lot of novels unreadable. I'm one of those people where if I'm not under a novel's spell in the first paragraph, I'm putting it down. But the author I've bounced off of most consistently is John Updike. There's something about the way he uses words, puts sentences together that I find deeply irritating. It probably helps that I read David Foster Wallace's famous dismantling of an apparently not good John Updike novel at just the right age, my early 20s, when I was at my brattiest. But I've returned again and again over the years to see if anything has changed, and it hasn't. In fact, just before calling you, I dug up the opening paragraph to Rabbit Run. Sure enough, by the third sentence, I found something that annoyed me. The, quote, moist March air blew above the wires, unquote, he writes. But it's not the air that's blue. It's the sky, John. Then a couple sentences later, he describes Rabbit Angstrom's nose as, quote, brief, unquote. What the hell does that mean? Then I went to Goodreads for Rabbit Run to see what lines from the book people seem to gravitate toward the most. The line at the top of the list is, quote, if you have the guts to be yourself, other people will pay your price, unquote. And there it is. It's not just that the writing style is lazy or too clever by half. It's also that he seems to be a jerk and to encourage other people to be jerks. So no thanks. There's so many other books to read.
3: So, Juliet, maybe this is where we'll have to end, uh, but there are times when you feel as though you're in a relationship with an author you're reading that borders on almost mutual animosity. I mean, it can't really be mutual. The author doesn't know that you exist, presumably, but you feel as though this person is getting on your nerves, uh, is deliberately <laughs> doing things that you don't like. And, and maybe talk a little bit about that and how somebody pushes through reading work by a person who for whom they they feel a kind of distaste oh we might have lost juliet oh that so we maybe she decided oh, not, she decided not, she decided not to finish us yes rand please do i would just recommend to brian um and i would love to
5: you know meet with him and have a beer and try to persuade him otherwise but he should at the very least read nicholson baker's book yes you and you I, and i yeah his quirky study of of updike and you know maybe he'll feel better about it. Ju
3: right. So uh, we actually thought of uh, having Nick Baker uh, join us for this show too. He would be an interesting person to uh, to talk uh, to about this. I think we're we're trying to reconnect with uh, Juliet uh, Lapidos. It turns out she didn't decide not to finish us. Um, <laughs> she just lost her phone connection. But yeah, as we're kind of wrapping up this segment, the, I I don't know if you heard the setup here, but I was sort of saying at times I think a reader feels as though there's an animosity that's almost mutual between him and this author, who obviously doesn't know the reader exists. Like, I don't like this guy. He's getting on my nerves. He's doing things that seem almost intentionally irritating to me. Um, So talk about that. How do you ride through a a literary relationship like that and get to the end of a book?
0: Sorry, are you asking me? Yes,
3: I'm asking you. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, sometimes I find that interesting. I like the conflict. Um, I... Um, At one point, read a lot of Henry Fielding, and he was somebody who, you know, the great British 18th century author, and he was someone who would give very detailed instructions to his readers about how to, um, how to read his books, because he was very controlling, and that would often get on my nerves, but I found it kind of interesting, and I think you always have the option available to you of not doing what it is that the writer wants you to do, um, that you can read their books in a way that they clearly did not intend and kind of get back at them that way without actually dropping the book. Um, And again, maybe I just... I, I, you know, part of it for me, I think, is just that I really enjoy the act of reading. And so maybe it's less painful for me or something than it might be for someone else who could take take or leave reading. Um, I just like the act of it. So it's, it's generally speaking not that painful for me to read a book, even if I don't like it that much.
3: All right. So the cost isn't as high and the benefit might still accrue. We're going to stop yeah. there. Uh, we are going to spend the final segment talking about a book that is Truly unreadable in the sense that in 600 years, no one has been able to read a word of it. We'll tell you more after this. All right. Thanks to Cat Pastor for being technical producer on this show and to our wonderful Lily Tyson for being senior producer uh, of the overall Colin McEnroe show and producer of this episode. Joining us now to talk about the Voynich Manuscript is Ray Clemens, a curator of early books and manuscripts at Yale University's Beinecke Library. I said during the show before that there is one literally unreadable book. Uh, It is the Voynich Manuscript. No one has ever succeeded in reading it. So uh, Ray Clemens describe this five or 600 year old manuscript to those of our listeners who don't know about it?
6: Well, it is a medieval manuscript uh, written sometime in the early 15th century. And uh, if you've ever seen a botany uh, book, it looks a lot like that. Um, The first half of it has medieval plants uh, with flowers and leaves and roots. Um, It has an entire section uh, that has women uh, bathing uh, in what looks like healing baths of some sort. And it has an astronomical section um, where you have sort of star charts. Um, what's really weird about it is that it has a text and it looks a little bit like uh, Latin or Roman writing, um, but it's in a language and a script that nobody has yet figured out. Um, and so it is, it is an interesting composite manuscript.
3: Right. And just we have to sort of maybe even double down on that a little bit. We're talking about an alphabet that's unrecognizable, an alphabet that's never been used anywhere else. Um, So, I mean, (laughs) it's not just that the language isn't one that we recognize. We wouldn't even know how to begin trying to recognize it, correct?
6: Exactly. We can't read it. We can't speak it. We can't understand it. Um, we're not even sure what letters are letters. Uh, you know, there's there's all sorts of different letter forms, and we're not entirely sure uh, where one letter begins and the next letter ends. Um, although people have been working on that for quite some time now. And and
3: even the purpose of it is a little bit elusive. It seems to be trying to tell us something. It seems to be some kind of compilation of knowledge. At that time, although you look at the illustrations, and there's also something a little bit fanciful about them. They they aren't. They're sort of the opposite of photorealistic, right? They look like somebody's imaginings at times.
6: Yes, I've actually described the the ones with women bathing look a little bit like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> um, they've got really wild plants um, and figures that are that are really difficult to decipher. Um, but what's interesting about the language uh, your one of your earlier guests uh, Rand, talked about Finnegan's wake and having a private language um, that, that wasn't understandable and that that sort of thing doesn't exist in this period. Um, and so what's really interesting about this is that you know botanies are everywhere uh, they're not private, they're not secret. Uh, why would somebody write uh, you know in a code or in a language that nobody understands about plants? Um, You know, that's one of the the big disconnects for me uh, in the manuscript.
3: You know, we could have an—first uh, I, I, of all, I should say, I've had the Voynich manuscript on a sort of back burner list of things we should do an entire show episode about, and it was so <laughs> it was so perfect here that we just had to bring it in. But we could do an entire show about just the provenance of it, just in the number of people who have acquired it, often over the years, for the purpose of be, finally being that person who brings, yes. brings it into comprehensibility. I mean, that's been a mountain that certain people have tried to climb— you know, for 20 years of their lives.
6: Yes, and unfortunately, they—they they, you, you talked about books that, that people start and get a few pages into and books that you almost get to the end of and, and don't finish. Uh, this is a book that honestly, you can't get into the first line of it. Um, I, I read manuscripts and I thought it would be fun. And it's actually very frustrating because you can't read it. Um, it's not even like you're reading French or Latin. There's just, there's nothing there to get a handle on, uh, to get your mind around it. Um, and so all you have to go on are the pictures. Um, and unfortunately, you're right. Uh, a number of people have, have tried to interpret the manuscript, and um, the Times Literary Review did a, a famous article a few years ago, uh, which was entirely wrong. Um, a lot of scientific journals have published solutions that also go nowhere. Uh, so it really is an enigma
3: the the problem is that the the enigma may be more beautiful and entrancing than the ultimate answer right I, I was i know this is a very pedestrian comparison but there was this whole thing years ago where there was some kind of vault that supposedly contained stuff that belonged to Al Capone and I think Geraldo Rivera was yes. presiding over the open just, and the whole thing was such an incredible anticlimax. And and right now the Voynich manuscript it really is what are these legitimate curiosities something and we should say like the people who've tried to figure this out sometimes they're the among the greatest polymaths of that particular century are <laughs> bringing yes. their ferocious intellects to bear on this thing and getting nowhere on it and you sort of wonder like well what if they somebody did figure it out and it was just kind of boring and stupid Stupid.
6: Well, I, I hope it wouldn't be, be boring and stupid, but uh, I, I think there would be, it would be almost sad in a way to lose uh, the last sort of unsolved Rosetta Stone. Um, the, one of the people you mentioned, uh, Athanasius Kerscher, hmm. uh, in the 17th century, he's one of the people that gets a hold of this manuscript. And uh, there's a famous book about him called The, the Last Man Who Knew Everything. Um, and as far as we can tell, it stumped him as well. Uh, there's no solution that we can find that he wrote about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if it's a botany, botanies aren't really all that interesting. I mean, they're good uses for plants, medicinal uses for plants. So it might be helpful. Uh, but again, why, why would you put that? into this unique language. So um, I think the joy would come in figuring out its context. Uh, why did somebody write this with these letters? Uh, and is it an actual language um, or is it is somebody playing with us? So
3: you're in the presence, the physical presence of this actual manuscript more than just about anybody, probably. And so my, I guess my last question to you is, does it I don't know when you're looking at it, does it kind of have a personality? Does it feel like you're almost on the verge of talking to somebody who a long time ago really wanted people to know something?
6: That's really interesting. I've actually come away from it with the with the opposite feeling. <laughs> um, I get it, the sense of a manuscript that deeply resists my efforts to interpret it. Um, this is not a book that that draws me in. It's one that's constantly saying, "You can't figure me out." <laughs> All right.
3: Well, the, the same could be said of several other books that we were mentioned uh, that were mentioned here on the show today, but this one in a much more profound way. Ray Clemens, a curator of early books and manuscripts at Yale University's Beinecke Library. I have a standing date with Dennis Duncan. He's going to come here. There's a couple of things that we both want to look at, and now we have you as our tour guide, so that's going to be great. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today.
6: Thank you. I look forward to seeing you.
3: And thanks to you for listening as well. And thanks to Lily Tyson for producing and Kat for keeping us on the beat.